Sonic Hello and welcome to Sonic Talk. Uh, this week I'm away, so this is a sort of virtual me. And as I said in Sonic Talk number 89, where we also talked about Sir Ken Robertson and his motivational speaking, um, I'm going to play the lecture that he gave at the recent London International Music Show, which was recorded on Friday the 13th of June, a bit of an auspicious date, but uh, assure, I can assure you it went quite well. So this is him talking to the assembled people uh, on, that sh- on that show day. I uh, hope you enjoy it. We'll be back with normal service next week uh, for Sonic Talk number 90. Our guest speaker today led the landmark independent review of the British education system. I call for a radical change to, to the education system and for creativity to become central to every child's education. As someone who's 31 and grew up within the British education system, that was simply not a priority when, when I was at school in the 80s and into the early 90s. It was a much welcomed and overdue review. He's also very passionate about music, which makes him the perfect person here today. He's a champion for people's rights and education to be fit for purpose. So I know you will give him a huge welcome and the crowd will swell as he talks. So looking forward to this. Today's keynote Education Day speaker is Sir Ken Robinson. Thank you very much. How are you doing? Do you want to sit down? Are you okay standing? I'd sit if I were you. I'm going to ask you to do a few things, so it might be better. Um, isn't this a fantastic event? I mean, I'm completely blown away by this. I live in California now, um, but I used to live in England. About uh, seven years ago, I had a phone call from California, Los Angeles. Uh, a group of people said, would you like to come and live in California? And some friends of ours said, why are you going to live in California? We were living in Coventry at the time. So we left immediately. You know, I didn't even ask what the job was. We just went. And we now live bathed in tropical sunshine. I love it. But I love to come back to England, and I wanted really to have a quick conversation with you about some things that are going on here. I have three ideas I want to put out to you, which I think are at the back of this conference on edu- or this event on education. One is this: that we are living in times of revolution, and I believe this is a real, full-on, no-nonsense revolution. That the world is changing now in ways that most people can't predict and don't understand. The second thing is that our education systems are completely out of touch with what's going on. That most people go through the whole of their education and never discover their real talents. I've lost track of the number of people, brilliant people I've met who didn't do well at school. I was on the phone two days ago to Paul McCartney. That's it, by the way. It's not relevant to what I'm talking about. I, <laughs> I just want you to know I move in these circles. You know. Paul McCartney went through the whole of his education and hated music at school. He and George Harrison went through the whole of their education 
and nobody ever discovered they had any musical talent. Now, I don't blame this on schools generally, but it seems to me extraordinary that somebody can go through, of that talent, can go through the whole of their education and nobody ever know it. One of the things that always strikes me is that so many brilliant people don't know what they're really good at. I'm doing a whole new book about it at the moment called, uh, called The Element, which is about how to discover your natural talents. Um, so there is a revolution, and we have to think differently about talent. I'm convinced of that. The second thing is we have to think differently about human resources, about the things that we are naturally good at. And the third thing is that to do that, we have to run our schools differently, our institutions differently. Um, but there's a key thing in the middle of this I want us to think about, which is an extraordinary power that we all have that most people don't think they have. Has anybody here been to Las Vegas? It's fantastic, isn't it? I was there a couple of weeks ago. Uh, actually, I was there a year, two years ago. I got married again. I've been married for 25 years, and I went and got married again at the Elvis Chapel in Las Vegas, me and my wife. Um, we had the Blue Hawaii package. But there are others, you know, but with the Blue Hawaii package, you get uh, the Elvis Chapel, the Elvis impersonator, uh, four songs, and smoke. A puff of smoke. So as you come out, uh, there's a puff of smoke. Uh, also, there is a hula girl, which was optional. I opted for it, as it turns out. And also, for another $100, I could have had a pink Cadillac. But we thought that was a bit tacky, you know, really. thought that was lowering the tone of the whole occasion. But I mentioned it for this reason. If you think of it, a city like Las Vegas has no reason to be there. None whatever. Most cities are where they are for a reason. You know, it's near a harbor, you know, or on a hillside, or it's in a valley. So it's good for trade, or it's good for agriculture, or good for defense. Nothing of this is true of Las Vegas. It's in the middle of a desert, and there are no natural advantages. The only reason it's there is the reason I want to talk to you about, which is this extraordinary power that music represents. It's the only thing that makes a difference between us and other creatures. I mean the power of imagination. And most people, in my experience, don't even understand the power of their own imagination. So I want to show you a couple of things and ask you a couple of questions. Um, by the way, some of these things, can you see this, are in this book, uh, which I wrote myself. Uh, this book, by the way, is terrific. You could not do better than buy this book. Um, but it's about the nature of creativity, which is the thing I want us to think about for a couple of minutes. In my experience, most people think they're not creative. And yet, most, most children think they are. Can I ask you, how many of you have got young children? If you think of it, those kids, how many of them are of um, elementary school age? Children starting school this year will be retiring round about 2070. Think of that. Nobody has any idea what the world will look like in 10 years' time. Or 20, let alone in 2070. So creativity is going to be a very big piece of this future that we help to build together. But most adults think they're not. That's my experience. 
So let me ask you a question: How creative do you think you are? Okay, just have a think about that for a minute, and think of it on a scale of one to ten, with ten at the top. Now, while you're thinking about that, think about this question: How intelligent are you? On a scale of one to ten. Okay. Now, I'm going to ask you to put your hands up. You don't have to. You may say, "Well, I'm not going to." You know, I'm. I've come to limbs. I did not come here to put my hand up. You can sulk if you wish. But let me reassure you: there are no social consequences if you do. Okay? It's just a straw poll. But on that basis, would you put your hands up if you'd give yourselves ten for creativity? Ten. Put your hands right up. Thank you. Nine. Eight. Seven. Six. Five. Four. Three. Two. Okay. Where was the top of that curve? About seven. Okay. How about intelligence? Now, I know a certain social modesty comes into play on the question of intelligence, but try and overcome this. So, who would give themselves ten for intelligence? Thank you very much. Actually, you can go now if you want. <laughs> really, <laughs> we're just wasting your time, frankly. <laughs> How about nine? Eight. Seven, six, five, four. Thank you. <laughs> Three, two. Okay. I'm not doing one, by the way. If you got one, you're not following this anyway, are you? To be honest, I mean, <laughs> you have no idea what I'm talking about here, really. Here's the question that interests me. Put your hands up if you gave yourself different marks for both questions. Now think about that. In my experience, most people do give themselves different marks for intelligence and creativity. Why do we do that? You see, I believe passionately that for the future, we have to develop our natural creative capacities systematically, in the way that we develop things like literacy. But education doesn't do it. It's still remarkable to me that most school systems don't treat music, or art, or dance as seriously as they treat mathematics and English. And that's one of our problems, I think. But a deeper one is this, which is in that vote that you give between intelligence and creativity. There may be all kinds of reasons why you gave yourself different marks, but let me speculate with you. I think one of the reasons is. That we tend to see a big difference between creativity and intelligence. Is this true? You know that you can be very creative but not very intelligent, very intelligent but not very creative, and that to me is the heart of the problem. Because we tend to think they're two separate things when, in fact, you can't be creative unless you're acting with high intelligence. One of the reasons music does not have the place it should have in education around the world is precisely because. It sits outside the dominant definition of intelligence. It's why many brilliant people think they're not. So I'm very interested in trying to reconnect these ideas of creativity and intelligence. 
But I wanted to show you something. Um, how many of you were once children? Thank you very much. Actually, I'd like to know how many of you still are, <laughs> because thank you. The people who achieve a lot creatively, in my experience, are still kids. They manage to keep something alive in themselves of the child, and grown-ups tend to lose it somewhere. I'm going to show you something.、Um, a while ago, there was a study done of divergent thinking. Now, divergent thinking is not the same thing as creativity, but it's really fundamental. Divergent thinking is the ability to see lots of answers to a question, to see lots of alternative possibilities, often to rethink the question. People who are good at this、um, have all kinds of ideas that other people don't think about. It's, a, it's like、um, a good example. Often is people might say, "How many uses are there for a paperclip?" Kind of cod example. People who aren't good at divergent thinking might say, "Well, ten." They might spend an hour to come up with ten. People who are really good at this might come up with two hundred, because partly they'll say things like, "Well, does it have to be that size? Could it be two hundred foot high? Could it be made out of foam rubber?" Do you know what I mean? They don't accept the question; they rethink the question. So there are studies done of divergent thinking, and this study I was looking at, they gave tests of divergent thinking to fifteen hundred people, and on the Protocol of the test: If you scored above a certain level, you'd be considered to be a genius at divergent thinking. Okay, much as you might be thought to be a genius at the kind of linear thinking that people look for in an IQ test. So my question is this: What percentage do you think of the 1,500 people scored at genius level for divergent thinking? Now you need to know one more thing about them: These were kindergarten children. Okay, ages three to five. So shout a number out. What percentage do you think scored at genius level for divergent thinking? Eighty, ninety, fifty. Thank you very much. This is their score. Ninety-eight percent. What was interesting about this was it was a longitudinal study. So they retested the same children. Five years later, okay. So, what do you think? Seventy, fifty. What? Twenty-seven. Okay. Okay. Same kids. They test them again five years later, ages thirteen to fifteen. What do you think? How many? Nine. <laughs> There you go. Ten. Very close. Thank you. Now, there are a couple of stories about this. One is that you might expect that graph to go the other way. You know that kids are born not being very good at this, but they get better. All the evidence is we start off really good at it and we get worse. Why? I mean, there are all kinds of reasons you might speculate about. But one of them, I believe, is this: that by now, by the time they get to be 15, these kids have become educated. You know, they've spent ten years at school, being told there's one answer, and it's at the back, and don't look, because that's cheating, and don't copy from anybody else because that's cheating too. I mean, outside of schools, that's called collaboration, you know, but inside, it's called cheating. Now, to me, this is really important. 
Uh, Picasso once said this. He said, all children are born artists. The problem is to remain an artist as we grow up. How we hang on to it. It's why I'm saying that people in my experience who have a lot of creative energy and confidence keep a child alive in themselves somewhere. They, they play at the thing they do and they love to be playful with it. But part of what this contributes to are misconceptions about creativity. And I think this event shows that they are misconceptions. One of them is this, that only special people are creative. This is a complete myth. The fact is that everybody, you included, all the kids you know, all the people you work with, have profound creative capacities. The problem is to discover them and know how to develop them. Most people don't discover them, and so they think they're not. The second misconception is that it's about special things. It's not. You can be creative in anything. But people think it's just about the art. Some of the most creative people I know are mathematicians. And by the way, there's a lot of math in music. Uh, my daughter, till she was 12, thought that I knew everything. And I was very keen to encourage this idea, frankly. Um, but I was terrible at maths at school. And she inherited this kind of indisposition. So till she was 12, she thought I was great. You know, she'd bring her homework home and I would help her with the eight times table. And I would cut my way through this like a math god. You know, she just couldn't believe my expertise. And then one day she brought me home some quadratic equations. And I felt the old familiar cold sweat, you know. So at this point, I introduced learning by discovery methods. You know, I said to her, Kate, there's no point in me telling you the answer. You know, that, this is not how we learn. You know, we have to find this out for ourselves. I'll be outside having a gin and tonic. And, and even when you've done this, there's no point showing me the answer. This is what teachers are for. You know? <laughs> anyway, a few weeks later, she brought home this cartoon strip, which I thought was great. It was uh, three panels of a father helping a daughter with homework. I don't know where she got it. But in the first one, the father says, the dad says to the daughter, what have you got to do? And the daughter said, I've got to find the lowest common denominator. And the father said, are they still looking for that? He said, they were, they were trying to find that when I was at school. Which is exactly how I felt about the whole thing, really. But the people I know who work full-time in maths, who are pure mathematicians, love it. And they love it because it's creative and it's aesthetic. So it's not about one thing, it's about everything. The third misconception is there's nothing you can do about this. You're either creative or you're not, and that's the end of it. And I believe that you can teach everybody to be more creative. And this whole event is about that. This isn't an exclusive event for people who happen to be good at music. What this demonstrates is that everybody has musical capacity if they have the opportunity to develop it properly and if they have the backing and the support and the encouragement to do it. But it's really fundamentally important to me now that we get hold of this idea. And the reason is this. I said that there's a revolution happening. There really is. And it's an extreme revolution which will change everything. There are two big things that are happening in the world just now, which I just quickly want to outline to you. The first of them is the two big drivers of change. One of them is this. This is a brain cell. I put it there to demonstrate something that's remarkable in the culture just now, which is the fantastic speed of development in technology. Can I ask you, how many of you here consider yourself to be baby boomers? 
Any baby boomers? Anybody? Okay. People over 40. How many of you? All right. Who's under, who's under 30? Thank you very much. How many of you over 40 are wearing a wristwatch? Put your hand up. Thank you. How many of you under 30 are wearing a wristwatch? Under 20? Now, I just wanted to spot something here. My generation, I was born in 1950. I apologize for this, but it's true. I know you don't believe that, by the way. I can feel the incredulity in the room, you know, but, but I live in Los Angeles now, you know. I've had work done. <laughs> what can I tell you? People of my generation wear wristwatches, much more than people of my daughter's generation. She's 19. And the reason is, we were brought up thinking you had to wear these, and my daughter is of a generation where, for whom the time is everywhere. She sees no reason to wear a wristwatch unless she happens to like them. We take this for granted. Our kids, people under 25, tend not to wear it quite so much. Now, it sounds trivial, except in this respect. It points to a distinction that was made recently by a guy called Mark Prensky between what he calls digital natives and digital immigrants. What he means is, if you're over 30, like me, we were born before the digital revolution began. So we've learned this secondhand, and we're not terribly good at it. You, if you're under 30, were born after it began, and younger people speak digital. There is a digital divide between the generations, which I think, as somebody once said, is probably the most serious cultural divide since rock and roll. Rock and roll divided me from my parents. Now, I think I'm okay with digital stuff, but I am nowhere like my daughter and my son. When Kate was doing her homework at school, she has six or seven windows open, instant messenger going at the bottom of the screen, her mobile phone is ringing constantly, she's being IM'd all the time, she's downloading music and the television's on in the background. I don't know if she's doing any homework, by the way, but she's running an empire, I don't care, frankly. You know, when I am online, I have one window open, and I am thrilled with myself, you know, because <laughs> this is my window, you know, and I opened it personally. My kids get really exasperated if I'm searching online. They ask me not to do it when they have friends in the house because it's like so cripplingly embarrassing. But the thing is, this has not stopped. It's getting faster. All this stuff we think now is so extraordinary will be outmoded within a couple of years. That's why I'm showing you this. Apparently, the most powerful computer on Earth at the moment has the processing power equivalent to the brain of a grasshopper. I was told this by the head of education at Apple. Now, I don't know how he knows that. You know, but he's an expert, so I believe him, and I'm telling you, I want you to believe me. The brain of a grasshopper. But by 2020, the most powerful computers on Earth will have the brain equivalent of a six-month-old child. And at that point, we'll have crossed the threshold. At that point, computers will be capable of learning. They will be, in effect, conscious. I said, what does that mean? He said, it means they'll be able to rewrite their own operating systems. Well, any of you who've been watching the Terminator movies knows that that is Skynet at that point. But the next threshold is the merging of human consciousness with information systems. To be able to download computer programs directly into your brain. This may happen in your lifetime. This is a brain cell. And this one is a human brain cell growing on a silicon chip. 
the next threshold. Now, it sounds preposterous that you might be able to download things into your brain, but if you went back 30 years and handed somebody an iPhone, they wouldn't understand what you were showing them. They'd think you were Captain Kirk. This is revolutionary technology. The next thing, though, is this. This is a map of something extraordinary. This is um, an alleged map of attention deficit disorder in the, UK, in the US. The instance of ADHD. How many of you here have been told you've got ADHD? I don't believe this. No, sorry, I don't mean you personally. I mean, I don't mean there's no such thing as ADHD, but I can't believe it's this sort of epidemic that we're seeing. Our kids are being routinely prescribed for this condition when actually they're just bored a lot of the time. How many of you boomers have had your tonsils removed? Now, this is important, to me anyway. People of my generation had their tonsils taken out routinely. People of this generation don't have their tonsils taken out. Sounds trivial, but the point is, having your tonsils taken out for my generation was routine. It was actually a medical fashion. There was mostly no reason to do it. And nowadays, it's exceptional. I'm sure there's something on this generation which is equivalent to attention deficit disorder. But I can't believe it's plaguing millions of people across the world. This is a habit of medical prescription. The fact is, our kids are living in a world which is intensely stimulating, very quick, multitasking constantly, and much of what they're asked to do in education is rather tedious, and getting more so. And one of the results of this is that we're medicating people to get them through the program. I have a big interest in the arts, and music in particular here. If you think of it, one of the reasons that music is important is because it promotes aesthetic experiences. An aesthetic experience is one that makes you dwell in the moment, enjoy the sensory aspects of your life, and be aware of what's going on around you. It deepens your sensibility. The opposite of aesthetic is anesthetic. An anesthetic is what shuts you down and makes you insensible. And a lot of the stuff we're prescribing to our kids is to anesthetize them to get them through the program. And what I believe is more profoundly important is that we should wake them up. And music and the art are among the ways in which we do that. Let me just show you one more thing. This is the other big driver of change. This is the curve of the world's population. Most of our education systems were planned at the beginning of the 19th century. And at the time, there was hardly anybody around. Fewer than a billion people. The first billion people on Earth, it took the whole of history to get to 1900, sorry, to 1800. The second billion took 130 years. The third billion took 40 years, from 1930 to 1970. And between 1970 and the year 2000, the population of the Earth doubled to 6 billion. And it's heading to 9 billion by the middle of the century. But what's really interesting about this is that the growth is not happening in Europe. It's not happening in America. The population here is declining. The real growth is happening on the other side of the Earth, in Asia, parts of um, South America, and the Middle East. That's where the huge growth is happening. That's the big pale bit. And the other feature of this is the world is becoming more and more urbanized. We are living in cities. At the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, nobody lived in the city. 3% of people lived in cities. Currently, 
50% of the 6 billion people on Earth live in cities, and by the middle of, the next century, of this century, 60% of 9 billion people will be living in cities. Massive, sprawling cities. Greater Tokyo currently has a population of 35 million people. Greater Tokyo, which is more than the entire population of Canada in one place. There may be 20 megacities by the middle of the century of more than 20 million people. This is unprecedented in the history of the Earth. But they won't be groovy cities like this. You know, cities that are planned with, you know, poll taxes and information booths and Starbucks. These will be massive conglomerations of humanity which will be built in a vernacular type of way. This is the biggest challenge we face currently. There'll be cities like this. This is Caracas in Venezuela. We don't know the architect here, by the way. This is a, a completely vernacular development. But here's the point I want to make. Al Gore talks about the climate crisis in the natural world, and he's right. There is a massive crisis in the use of the world's natural resources, unprecedented. I believe there's a crisis in the way we use our human resources, which is equally unprecedented. And that to face the future, we have to make much more of this basic capacity of imagination and creativity, and we have to build it into education, systematically. It's why music and the other arts matter so much to us now in the future. Let me just show you something. Just have a read of this. This is um, a quote from the philosopher Bertrand Russell, which seems to me to express a really important question about why we're on the planet. It puts it beautifully, I think. Is our life nothing? Is it inconsequential? Does it mean nothing? Or is it everything? You know, is it uh, trivial? Or is it as important as Hamlet, Shakespeare's great hero, thought it was. I got really interested in this first part of the question, the small and unimportant planet bit. The thing is, it's hard to know how small or unimportant this planet might be. It's rather important that we understand it, though. One of the problems is it's the scale of things that's hard to judge. We've got images like this. This is the megalanic cloud, which was taken by the Hubble telescope. You know that um, distances in space are measured in light years, which is the distance that light travels in a year, which is far. This is further than Los Angeles is from here. The distance light travels in a year. This picture covers an area of 170,000 light years. Does that mean anything to you at all? It's inconceivably huge. So how big are we in the middle of all of this? I came across this fantastic set of images. I think they're fantastic anyway. I had them re-rendered for your interest. Somebody had the fantastic idea, to me, of giving us a sense of scale of the Earth by taking distance out of the equation. One of the difficulties in understanding scale is the problems of distance in the middle. So whoever did this original idea effectively took the Earth out of the cosmos and put it on the ground with some other planets to get a sense of scale, okay? Just like a team photograph of the Earth in the solar system. 
This is the first one. This is the size of the Earth compared to some other planets. Isn't that fantastic? There are a couple of things I want to say about this immediately. I think the first is, frankly, that we are less worried now about being invaded by Martian hordes. Don't you feel? Like, bring it on, is, <laughs> is what I feel. Like, you and whose army, honestly? The second thing is this, that Pluto is no longer a planet. You may have read that. And frankly, I think we can see why now. You know, it's like a boulder, just a rock floating in space. But that's us, I think, looking pretty good. You know, we've every reason to feel confident here, don't you feel? But keep an eye on the Earth as you pull back a little bit and take in some of the other planets in the solar system. This is the Earth against Jupiter and Saturn. And I think, frankly, it's a bit less reassuring than it was. Um, we're starting to scale down a bit. Pluto has become a kind of cosmic embarrassment, I think, at this point. Like, let's not even talk about Pluto anymore. But we know that the sun is bigger than we are. So how big? You know, is it like uh, twice the size of Jupiter? You know, what size are we compared to the sun? Just keep your eye on this. Did you know that? That's fantastic, isn't it? But at least we've got the sun looking after us. But keep your eye on the sun as you pull back a little bit more. Now you can see Arcturus in the night sky. Jupiter is one pixel at this point, and the Earth has gone completely. But keep your eye on Arcturus as we come back one more step. Again, to see other objects you can see in the night sky. The sun is about one pixel, and Jupiter has gone completely. So when you come back there, you can see that we are inconceivably tiny as a planet. Now, there's a couple of things to say about this. Um, the first is that whatever you woke up worrying about this morning, get over it, honestly. <laughs> Frankly. <laughs> I mean, how much can it conceivably matter? <laughs> Just make the phone call, apologize, and move on, would be my, <laughs> my advice to you, honestly. But the second thing is this. We may be tiny, in the cosmic scheme of things, but we do have this power that no other species has ever demonstrated. And I can put it to you this way. We have the power uniquely, for example, to conceive of our own insignificance. There are no other species on Earth developing PowerPoint presentations about the cosmos. You know, no other species is holding a music festival at the moment. I mean, birds sing, but they don't do gigs, you know. Um, you know, some species are very agile, but they don't organize the Olympics. We have this extraordinary capacity of imagination. And it is everything. We are, in the end, also the species that produced Hamlet and hip-hop and Mozart and the blues and reggae and every form of human cultural manifestation. It's the one thing that sets us apart from every other species. And it's the one thing we'll depend upon as we move into the future. It's fundamental. 
Now, creativity is a step on. Because you could be imaginative all day long, but if you never did anything, you'd never be thought to be creative. Creativity is about using your intelligence and putting your imagination to work. It's about the application of imagination. Now, this brings me just to say a couple of words about this event. Creativity has always interacted with technology. These technologies that you see at LIMS this year are presenting enormous the traditional conception of the music industries and to education. But every musical era has depended upon new technology. The symphony orchestra is a technology. Um, rock and roll depended in its formation on a technology. Digital technologies are making enormous opportunities available to millions of people. But we don't quite understand yet what the full implication of these technologies are likely to be. But if I show you this quickly, um, this is Thomas Edison. Um, one thing that's interesting to me is that real creativity means working in a medium, but most creativity means working in groups. It's not just an individual thing, it's finding other people who think the way you do and working with them, or thinking in a way that's synergistic. Thomas Edison um, was the most prolific inventor in the history of America. Over 12, 1,100 patents at the US Patents Office, including the phonograph, which became the gramophone, which became the music industry as we know it. Before the phonograph, people had to play and there was no way of recording the results. Now, we take the recording industry totally for granted. But it's given us an industry that's really less than 100 years old in its current formation. Um, I, have you heard of a guy called Hans Zimmer? Hans Zimmer is probably the most successful, after John Williams, the most successful composer for movies in America. Uh, he has an office about five blocks from my office, and I was with him the other week, talking to him about developments in the music industry in relation to movies. Do you remember that song, Video Killed the Radio Star? Do you remember that song? By the Buggles. He was in it. Uh, he used to be in the Buggles. I asked him, by the way, I said, why were you called the Buggles? He said, and he said, everybody asked me this. It's so obvious. I said, what? He said, it's a pun on the Beatles. I just mentioned it to you. Nobody I know <laughs> ever understood the pun. But Han's point was interesting, because I said, when videos start to come out accompanying music, I didn't quite get it, because I like to listen to the music, and it used to distract me to watch the video. He said something really interesting to me, which, which was this. He said that before recording, music was always accompanied by visuals, because you had to be there to see it happening. He said he went to see Alfred Brendel perform Rachmaninoff, and he so loved the performance, he went and bought the record. But he didn't like the record as much as the performance because he could see Brendel playing and all his animation and passion that went with it. So he said it's actually historically quite recently that we detached vision from sound. And all he's doing is kind of reconnecting it. These things have always had a traditional connection. But the point is that technology has always moved things into a different place. The electric guitar is what gave rise to rock and roll, what moved it from the blues effectively to rock and roll and beyond. Now, the digital technologies have, as yet, to me, unexplored consequences. Two things are happening with it, though. One is that there is, in my experience, more music-making happening now than at any time in the history of the Earth. It has, so to speak, massively democratized creativity in music.
in every way. It has fantastically positive implications for making music. It's having negative consequences for the traditional conception of the music industries. Digital downloading is having a massive effect on revenues for record companies as we know them. And also it's led to the massive closure of music stores across Europe and in America. Tower Records just closed down in America. You know, one of the great icons of the music industry. Um, hundreds and hundreds, I think in 2006, over 300 music stores closed in California alone. And the music store used to be a great place where people met, there was a culture of exchanging music and so on, and a depth of experience to be had there. So part of this, I think, the conversation that should be stimulated from this event is the implications for the distribution, quality, and standards of music making implicit in these new technologies. But the second thing is this, it's having massive implications for education. There's always, in my experience, been a kind of divide between music in education and music outside of education. There's a, a French sociologist called Pierre Bourdieu, and he talked about heretical and orthodox culture. Schools tend to teach orthodox culture, and the growth tends to happen outside the system, not always, but rather typically. I think this massive growth in music making has real implications for schools and particularly for the roles of teachers who are there to facilitate and help to encourage and promote judgment and standards and so on. So one of the conversations I hope will come out of this event is a new form of partnership between schools and the business sector. It seems to me embedded in the ethos of the London International Music Show that that conversation should move forward. But let me just show you a last couple of things. I do a lot of work trying to promote um, innovation in organizations and in school systems. And it's really this kind of model. It's about developing a different conception of personal ability, because I'm convinced that most people, I say, don't understand their own talents, uh, and that we need to rethink our education systems to achieve more of that. It's about understanding how great groups operate, but it's about the culture of organizations. We don't know what the world will look like in future, but we do know we have to think differently about people. I think the shift is this. Our systems of education have marginalized arts and music partly for this reason. They were developed mainly in the 19th century to meet the needs of the industrial economy. And if you think of it, most schools are a bit like factories. I don't speak about teachers, I mean the system. People go through it by age. It fascinates me this. You know, why do we educate people by how old they are? You know, it's like the most important thing about them is their date of manufacture. You know, so all the eight-year-olds, all the ten-year-olds, all the eleven-year-olds go forward at the same time. And our education systems are being, I believe, plagued now with standardized testing. The effect of both of these things is to destroy the creative impulse, because it, it keeps people apart from their natural talents, and it makes them conform. That's what that graph is about, the divergent thinking. What we know about music and the arts is they thrive on individuality, on new ways of thinking, on the divergent, not the convergent. Now, I think we need to go forward to a different model of schools and schooling. Not an industrial model, but in a way an agricultural model. Um, if you think of it, we have to... The reason many people lose their abilities creatively is because the conditions militate against it. So we need to change the conditions. But I think a better metaphor is not industrial, it's organic. If you're a farmer or a gardener, what we know is that you cannot make a plant grow. You simply can't. I mean, you don't 
attach the petals and glue on the leaves and paint the damn thing. You know, a plant grows itself. What you do, if you're any good, is create the ideal conditions for growth, in which the thing will grow itself. I came across a great image recently of、um, Death Valley. Death Valley is not far from Las Vegas, which I mentioned, where the Elvis Chapel is. Death Valley is the hottest, driest place in America. Nothing much grows in Death Valley, and the reason is it doesn't rain. In the winter of 2004, something remarkable happened. It rained constantly till about seven inches of rain, and in the spring of 2005. This phenomenon occurred. The whole floor of Death Valley was carpeted in spring flowers, as far as you could see. Photographers, botanists, scientists came from all across America to see this thing they might not see again. What it demonstrated, though to me, was that Death Valley wasn't dead. It was asleep. Right beneath the surface were these seeds of growth. And of life, waiting for the conditions to be right, and when the conditions came, it all grew, and then it stopped raining, and the sun came out, and it all went back beneath the ground. And I find this constantly in human systems. People tend to think of organisations like schools or businesses as if they're a mechanism. You know, if you look at it, you see an organisational chart. It looks a bit like a wiring diagram, but really, organisations aren't like that. Organisations are living things. They thrive on relationships and feelings and values and motivations. They're much more like a plant, and if we create the right conditions for growth, then these things start to happen. I came across a great quote recently.、Um, this thing about how we differ from other species.、Um, I mean, since Darwin, we've had some sense of where we come from as a species, and we beat ourselves up、um, about the appalling things that happen in the world, and we're right to. But our salvation is this power of imagination, and we have to depend upon it, and we have to cultivate it systematically. I came across this great quote, which I'm paraphrasing, but it says, "Human beings were born of risen apes, not fallen angels." And so, what shall we wonder at? Our massacres, our missiles, or our symphonies? The miracle of humankind is not how far we have fallen, but how magnificently we have risen. We will be known among the stars, not by our corpses, but by our poems. I think this is profoundly true. There is something in the human spirit which is unquenchable, but we keep trying to quench it, and we have to do something more than that. I came across、um, a great quote. I think it was from Michelangelo, who said that. The problem for human beings, generally, and I think it's true in our institutions and in our lives, is not that we aim too high and fail, but that we aim too low and succeed. And I think music, in all its variety and all its forms, illustrates the heights to which the human spirit can ascend if it's properly cultivated, properly supported, and properly inspired. And we have to make sure it sits at the heart of our education systems, and that we cultivate the talents which are on display throughout this whole event. And I want to congratulate Limbs. I want to congratulate Think Again and the Music Manifesto for putting this education event together as part of the day. And I want to congratulate you on coming and on the work that you do. And I want to encourage you to aim high.
And if you do, you'll succeed. Thank you very much. Sonic State. Okay. Sonic.